and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. As the Second World War ended and life began to return to normal, Ella Manuel was eager to learn something about the commercial fishery, so she joined a purse seiner cruising Port-a-Port Bay. Here is her story called Chasing the Herring. Herring abounded in the Bay of Islands during World War II. Local fishermen were busy in catching and packing herring, and the fish merchants were spending large sums in building processing plants and a dehydrating factory. And then, for some unaccountable reason, the herring moved farther south, appearing in Port-a-Port Bay, more than 50 miles by sea from Bay of Islands. Fishermen with only motorboats and power dories couldn't follow the herring this far. Moreover, there were few fishermen around the shores of Port-a-Port Bay, since men here were occupied in far more lucrative pursuits at the nearby United States airplane base at Stephenville. In order to get sufficient raw materials to keep the Bay of Islands fish plants operating, their owners introduced purse saners, large diesel-driven boats about 70 feet long that with a crew of six to ten men could range over long distances for several months without having to refuel or replenish supplies. They were attended by small schooners called packers, which brought the saners' catches to the factories, and it was on the packer Susan that I shipped out of Bay of Islands for a fishing trip four o'clock of a pitch-black morning at the end of November. "'Well, I'm a brave man to take you on this voyage,' said my cousin, owner of the purse saner Western Star that we were headed for, "'and you're a foolish woman to go. You'll be good and seasick and scared to death, and you'll wish you'd stayed home,' he said. All of which was perfectly true, except for the last, for I'd go again tomorrow to watch them hunting for the herring that should now have been well inshore. We were to cruise around Port-a-Port Bay to search with echo sounders for the elusive little fish that meant for so many of my people the difference between hunger and plenty. I went aboard the Susan at Curling, the center of the herring fishery in the Bay of Islands, where fish are unloaded, cleaned, cured, packed and shipped all over the world. The houses here line the shore, the little coves and harbors now crowded with the overflow of workers from the industrial town of Corner Brook, but curling still retains its authentic flavor. When the herring run is on, excitement catches your throat, life stirs and bustles, and even the children work in the sheds, cutting, cleaning, and packing, and well paid, too. But now the waterfront was deserted. The only sound, the damp wind slapping against the rocks and the tide sucking it out with an eerie swish. The straps of my pack sack dug into my shoulders as I clambered over empty barrels and piles of lumber, peering into the darkness for the Susan. Her skipper had said on the phone, We don't wait a minute after four. What, Wharf? Well, I don't know. You'll find us somehow. Find them I did by the sparkle of the galley stovepipe, and I jumped the rail precisely as the Susan's hawser left the bollard. Thought you weren't coming, the skipper said. Hoped, you mean? But he had the courtesy to settle me comfortably in the wheelhouse. As we watched the crew make ready for sailing, my cousin said to me, You know, Newfoundlanders are people with one idea, and that idea is fish. We might pretend that we're becoming industrialized, but we're still convinced that fishing is the only real occupation, the only real wealth. 
And the curious thing is that although we are avid for mechanization and everything else, most of us believe in our secret hearts that the best way to fish is the way our grandfathers did it. I think that the fisherman believes you can't improve on that, or he's afraid that big boats and seines and long liners will take away his living. But, I argued, if you had to depend on the local fishermen, you'd have to close up your herring processing plant. Yes, and that's why I've got these purse seiners with echo sounders and the ability to range long distances. I can't depend on the Bay of Islands herring, and the fishermen can't go where we're going now. But when we first brought the purse seiners into the bay, the fishermen threatened to finish us. No, I said delight, for I must admit, I love a rousing tale. Oh, yes, you don't remember because you were away then. They came down to the plant in a body, and one big fellow, the ringleader, threatened to heave me over the wharf if I didn't take the saner out of the bay. I bluffed a bit and told him if I went overboard he'd go too, and I could swim. I held him for a time, but I must confess when I went over to the plant I, I was a bit scared. You know, he continued, we've been fighting over saners for a hundred years. Not the purse saners, of course. They're comparatively new, but about sane nets, those vertical nets that surround, trap, and then haul in schools of small fish. Why, as far back as 1878, an American ship put in Fortune Bay on the south coast and dropped a sane net. There was a proper riot, and the local fishermen tore up the net, smashed the dories, and drove the Americans out. That went on for two years, and in the end, the Americans presented England with a bill for 15,000 pounds sterling for damages we Newfoundlanders had done to their herring fishing. And England made us pay a quarter of it just to punish us. Our great-grandfather, yours and mine, was herring fishing then, and he made a fair living at it. Just then, the captain appeared on the bridge, and we were off. The cook brought us steaming coffee from the galley, and we hugged our parkas round us against the gale coming in the bay right towards the Susan. She didn't mind as she moved away from the pier past the shelter of a big freighter. Out we steamed, bobbing and tossing, slowly forward through snow scuds that hid the shore, over grey water that seemed to stretch forever. We rounded the point at the mouth of the bay into a tide rip that gave me uncomfortable moments and then we settled to an even heave and dip with which my stomach could adequately cope. Our radar, that blessed friend of sailors on our bleak coast, links us with the head and land and guides us towards Port-a-Port Bay, past high cliffs when we could see them, past the Serpentine River, its sullen mouth giving no hint of the lovely salmon pools and the trout-filled tree-sheltered inlets. We passed Fox Island, two miles offshore, with its greasy slopes reaching up to clumps of spruce on one shore, cliffs and shingle beach on another, while from the rocky shores many shelving ledges reach out hidden by high water. On one of them, clearly visible in civil weather, there lay for years what looked like the wreck of a steamer. Finally, we reached port port Bay, sheltered only in a southwest wind, venomously dangerous in a northerly gale, offering no shelter against the storm. And the wind sprang up with appalling vigor, stirring up the waves in the shallow water. The Susan skipper said, In a wind we generally hankers under the cliffs off Fox Island and pray our anchor will hold. If the wind shifts, we shift too, like in a merry-go-round, and I guarantee you that if the wind is fifteen miles an hour anywhere else, it's fifty miles an hour here. He pointed out the white hull of the western star, the Seine or I was to join. She's not making a set now, 
See, her net is hanging against the boom, so we'll put you aboard now while we can. Now, the Star was a Nova Scotian-built ship along the lines of a Pacific Saner, with bridge, superstructure, and living quarters forward in the blunt, rather ugly bow. Aft, in the low squat stern, there's a clutter of machinery. The main boom carries a derrick for the seine, which lies coiled in a huge box-like affair on a turntable. The yard arms carry smaller dipnets, or brailers, on ten-foot handles lashed to the mast, and everywhere ropes, winches, and dories. The ship carries radar, an echo sounder, and a ship-to-shore telephone, which makes the bridge a very efficient place. Now our captain was a grizzled, middle-aged man with wrinkled eyes and a soft voice. For years he's been following the herring, spring and fall, up and down the coast. Usually the saners go out for days, weeks on end, fishing, filling the insatiable maw of the smaller boats that move in to load the herring and sail back to port again. They have a good night's sleep while the saners crew toss and fight the wind and fish and fish. They're cold and wet most of the time and always in danger. The captain only sleeps when, bleary-eyed and drunk with fatigue, he naps on his feet. In the galley where the stove blasted out heat, we sat down to a meal of fresh cod boiled with potatoes, onions, and scrunchions of fat-back pork. We consisted of the skipper, my cousin, the cook, and seven fishermen with wind-burned faces and crinkled webs of wrinkles around their sailing eyes. Though their hands surreptitiously brushed tousled head and several caps were quietly removed to acknowledge the presence of a woman, they greeted me warmly plied my plate with food, and drew me into their conversation. In the midst of it came a tremendous whistle-blast. It brought me to my feet, but not as quickly as it did the others. The skipper darted up the companionway, the crew went in tender for directions at once, the cook dropped a pan of noodly-baked buns on the table, and shouted at me, Herring! adding, Get up on the bridge if you want to see the fun! There the skipper, scanning the echo sounder, gestured widely with his arm. That's a pretty good school, he said quietly. We'll go round them. And then to me, now you're going to see something. Keep your eyes open and get yourself out of the way. If we have what I think we have, nobody will pay much attention to you for the next few hours. A curtain of half-mist, half-snow shut out the world, except for a few miles of dirty gray water. The men worked urgently to lower away the small boat, and a burly sailor moving like a great bear in his sheath of woolens and oilskins climbed in and took the end of the seine. Fastening the oars in the locks, he rowed off, sometimes lost for minutes in the swell. The star, at slow speed, ambled off in the opposite direction, paying out the net from the starboard beam, everyone anxiously helping so as not to snag the precious net. Our ship swept around in a circle as the little boat bobbed alone, small and vulnerable, on the gray sweep of water, until we turned back toward it. Soon we were alongside, and we picked up her end of the net, which now lay in a wide circle, bobbing corks on the water's surface, dragging lead weights below. Then we began to pull the leads together, making the purse strings shorter to close the bottom of the net and catching the herring fast. The water's surface seethed and boiled, losing its greasy amorphousness in an iridescent shimmer of herring. I never would have believed so many fish could live in such a small space. The winch groaned and squeaked. The wind howled, snow and water soaking mittens and trickling up sleeves. The eternal tossing made standing erect a painful task. 
The brailers, small ropes ready to tip the fish aboard, flapped loosely from their lashings, and the sailors stood ready to start loading as the net came on board. Then they stopped, looked at each other with consternation, and alone on the bridge I felt a constriction of fear. My cousin climbed heavily up the ladder, and entering the shelter threw his cap on the table with a gesture of frustration. Ah, we broke the net, he said slowly. What? After all that work? That's terrible, I said. Well, could be worse, he said. Once we searched for three weeks, and the first school we sighted was so big on the sounder that we didn't dare put out the net. It would have been in shreds. Oh, well, we'll get over it. The winch had now lifted the great wet net thirty feet into the air. It hung under the powerful derrick light, a gray-black triangle. Behind it and through, I saw in the clearing sky the shimmering dancing colors of the aurora. At the base of the triangle on the glistening deck stood six men with arms uplifted to the net, their oilskins shining ebony. For one perfect moment, beauty static, the beauty of dancers frozen in motion in the night's black frame. Then the broken net dropped and folded on the deck, and the skipper declared, Well, there's nothing for it except back to curling. So back we went. Though chastened by their bad luck, the crew, like all fishermen, would be venturing out again before long. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next episode as El Emanuel celebrates Canada's centennial on the Upper Humber River. <laughs>